Welcome to the Nightmare of Reason podcast, Musings on Music, Art, and Society, with Roger Rudenstein. Today's podcast concerns classical music and is entitled, What Happened to Classical Music? Part 2. In my earlier podcast, I described what happened to classical music by going into my own history as a composer and how the dominance of atonalism almost made me not be a composer, (laughs) made me drop composing, go into drama, and only go back into composing after a number of years when it seemed like the influence of atonalism was waning a little bit. And today I would say it's gone. But it did play a huge role in where classical music is at today, and I want to go into this in more detail in this podcast. Let's first of all look at what atonalism is. It is not the use of dissonance. All composers, just about every composer you could mention in the history of composition have used dissonance. The question is how much dissonance? Dissonance has often been uh, compared to salt and pepper, and indeed it is. If music is totally tonal, it can become horribly boring. And you can see that, at least in my opinion, by listening to what's called new age music, that treacly kind of music that makes elevator music look good. But the question is how much? Now, when the salt and pepper come to be the only thing you taste, that's when we get atonalism. <laughs> it's like the spice has become the meal. Some of the devices that have been used to achieve this kind of atonalist effect are serialism and chromaticism. Serialism is a theory that was concocted around the turn of the century, the last century, not this century, the 20th century, wherein no note can be written until all other notes are written. So there are, sometimes it's called the 12 tone theory because there are only 12 tones. And generally people like to start at C and go up from there, but there's only 12 of them and they're in different registers. Yes. So you look at a piano keyboard, you can see that they're in different registers. One and C2 and C3 and C4 as they're called, but they're nevertheless the same 12 tones. Serialism was the brilliant idea that, Hey, let's write some music where if you write an A, you can't write an A until you've written B, C, D, E, F, G, and now you can come to another A that produces a hard to listen to music. The other idea that was uh, being used was chromaticism. That's simply the practice of including notes in a chord that don't belong to the key the chord is written on. So if you have a C chord, a C major chord, and you put a note in there, it doesn't belong to the chord, that's considered chromaticism. And again, just like in the case of dissonance, most composers use chromaticism. But when chromaticism comes to be what the music is about, then you get a very dissonant, ugly tone that goes on and on until, in my opinion, the listener wants to either tear their hair out or commit suicide. These techniques were used in the early 1900s, the early 20th century, by uh, Richard Strauss, believe it or not, who in later life turned away from atonalism. But at that time, he used a lot of, of this kind of stuff in Salome and Electra. And although... 
again, it wasn't so dominant as to make it unlistenable in any way. But Berg's Vatsek and Lulu really went much further. Berg was an, an atonal composer, and his Vatsek and Lulu are totally atonal. In fact, an interesting anecdote about that, a critic was listening to, I think it was Lulu, who had perfect pitch. So he went up in the, in the Met, he was listening to it in the Met, and he went up in the, in the top there, and he opened the score. He had a little light so he could follow along in the score. And guess what? He found out that most of the notes that the singers were singing were not the notes in the score. Because <laughs> nobody knew the difference. And it really didn't make any difference. Another famous atonalist is Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg actually started out tonal. He, he was trying to imitate Wagner. He was trying to be like the next Wagner. He did this long rambling work called Girl Leader, which is a Wagnerian epic piece, which is, I found terrible, but I don't know. It's not, it's not bad. He did, the man had talent, so it's not gibberish, but it's, it really is very servile to Wagner's music, but not as good as Wagner's music. So he went in another direction. He went to, into serialism and atonalism. He, Schoenberg, and Webern and some other composers like Berg were part of the second Viennese school. The first school was Mozart, Beethoven, and those kind of composers. They saw themselves as being the second Viennese school where atonalism was the method. But even though there was all this experimentation, atonal music in the early part of the 20th century was considered experimental and did not dominate the field. You had plenty of other composers who were not atonal and who made it big, uh, including Stravinsky, Charles Ives, Aaron Copland, others. But following World War II, as far as I can see, it, 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 everything changed. And it may have been partly as a reaction to the Nazis' affection for Beethoven and other German romanticism that atonal music became dominant. A lot of people were turned off by the Nazis, and therefore they thought anything the Nazis liked and Hitler liked really should be at this point rejected. And this music also had some very powerful theorists. The main one was a guy named Theodore Adorno. He was a prominent member of the Frankfurt School of Philosophy in Germany, and not just philosophy, but engaged in social theory. That school wasn't actually a school, but it was a school of thought, like the second Viennese school. Adorno actually wanted to be a composer. He started out as a composer. He studied music under Alban Berg, the, the atonalist, and a very successful one, too. It's not like he was studying under some fringe guy. And he, had, he advanced idea that music should not serve commercial interests or paper over the misery of capitalist society with pleasant melodies. And I want to give you a long quote from a critic called Connor Caustic about Adorno, where he quotes Adorno and he adds his own commentary to it because he's very familiar with Adorno. And I think this is a very interesting information. Caustic says, to understand why Adorno championed what became known as new music, it is necessary to outline his critique of musical production in the age of mass production. For him, Adorno, Serious music faces two interrelated pressures, the role of the market and the condition of the music public. First, according to Adorno, the development of massive companies controlling the distribution of music has led to the, quote, disposal of artistic trash, unquote, since the pattern of musical production 
has become shaped by an overriding desire to achieve mass sales, which therefore means a desire to conform to the lowest common denominator in the tastes of the audience. Furthermore, quote, in order to survive some composers pretending to be modern, adapt to mass culture through calculated feeble-mindedness, unquote, according to Adorno. Also, says Caustic, compared to the previous epoch, less technically able composers nevertheless can have glorious careers. And then again, he quotes Adorno, dilettantes everywhere for the first time are launched as great composers. Musical life, which is now by and large economically centralized, forces the public to recognize them, unquote. And Caustic goes on, performance are affected by the same trends, becoming rituals, the show-off pieces familiar to the audience. The concert hall is attended in order to see the presentation of an ornament rather than to seriously engage with new music. Lastly, among the difficulties created by the growth of the market, again, these are Adorno's ideas, the cultural industry exerts an insidious pressure on the act of composition. Adorno believed that since artistic production was now typically invoked by commissions, the artist had been turned into a salaried employee and their creativity curtailed. The second set of difficulties facing serious music are those concerning the audience. From the mid-19th century onwards, Adorno believed, a schism opened up between audiences and composers. To escape commercial depravity, important music has avoided commercialism, but this has pushed it into isolation. Audiences have not followed composers. The bourgeois public does not want music that makes demands upon its senses, that dwells in the darkness of the world. According to Adorno, quote, the dissonances which horrify them testify to their own conditions. For that reason alone do they find them unbearable, unquote. Costa continues, the rest of us struggle to come to terms with new music because of our socially constructed musical predisposition. We have been educated to enjoy music of an early era. Furthermore, our possibility of moving on is determined by the presence of junk music all around us. Quoting Adorno again, the perceptive faculty has been so dulled by the omnipresent hit tune that the concentration necessary for responsible listening has been permeated by traces of this musical rubbish and therefore impossible, unquote. So that's caustic on Adorno. And of course, Adorno's whole point was that people didn't appreciate atonal music for these various reasons. But frankly, I think we could take it another way that he's making some pretty good points. Trouble is, he went a little too far with them in terms of thinking that ugly dissonant music was therefore what we should be appreciating and all this stuff, these other factors could have held us back from appreciating them. That's sad to my opinion, but that doesn't mitigate a lot of his points. So uh, going on, another phenomenon, and this is not caustic, this is me now, another phenomenon I've noticed occurred, the rise in teenage spending. After World War II, teenagers came into a lot of money as the economy boomed, the post-war, World War II economy. Remember, pre-World War II, things weren't so great. You had World War I, you had a lot of depression, and you did have the Roaring Twenties, but that did not seem to affect teenagers in the same way as the economy of the 1950s, where they had plenty of money to spend all of a sudden. And it seems to have spawned a huge industry catering to teen tastes. 
Although you do see that actually in the 40s too and a little earlier, like with Frank Sinatra and so on. So what we have is a situation where teenage tastes are very important to the musical industry, centering on sexuality, coolness, and affected by lack of musical knowledge that most teenagers have in the society today. Music came to be judged by how much it sold, independent of any other criteria. Is it art? Is it complex? Does it have depth? Does it have beauty? Does it have sometimes even compositional skill? As modern classical music retreated into atonal noise, popular music bloomed into an extremely profitable enterprise, one engaged by contemporary issues and feelings. Classical music used to do this. Beethoven's, for instance, his third symphony, the Eroica, was actually written um, in praise of Napoleon who seemed to Beethoven to be a liberator, liberating countries and peoples from the monarchs and the stagnation, the cultural stagnation that the monarchs had brought. However, he changed his mind when Napoleon attacked Prussia, <laughs> but uh, then he became very anti-Napoleon and called it, it was originally going to be called the Napoleon Symphony, and it, it wound up being called the Heroic Symphony, the Heroica. So he didn't, and then he wrote a subsequent piece called Wellington's Victory, a horrible piece, which probably you've never heard, but they play it sometimes on the radio. It's just a terrible piece, but it celebrated Wellington's victory over Napoleon. Actually, ironically, it became one of the several pieces that people in his day knew Beethoven for. They, they didn't care about him for the ninth or the, you know, critics did, but generally people didn't regard that as very important or any of other symphonies. They did like the first symphony, which is very Mozart, and they loved Wellington's victory. And they were no dumber than people, a lot of people today, because a lot of people today, the only thing they know about Beethoven is da 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 da, da or a feral lease, or a trivial piano piece compared to his, his piano sonatas, for example, or his piano or especially as piano concerti. The Ninth Symphony, by the way, who has a choral, choral piece, which of course, die hard, made famous <laughs> in our time. That choral piece is set to an ode by Schiller. Schiller was considered very out there in his time. His plays like The Robbers was considered very avant-garde. It's a hymn to joy, but it doesn't invoke the Christian gods. It invokes the classical gods very Renaissance-like in that sense. So it's not a religious thing. And it has odd things in it. For example, a Turkish march played by a Turkish band. And of course, the Turks were at that time enemies of like Vienna. They, they almost took over Vienna. That's where the croissant comes in to celebrate the victory of the Viennese Christians over the Ottoman Turks, over the Ottoman Empire. That, you notice it's shaped like a crescent, which is the symbol of Islam. Another phenomenon also occurred, according to critic Norman Lebrecht, who's a British critic, who's very astute, in my opinion. He wrote a whole book about this, pointing out that classical performers at a certain point priced themselves out of the local market. So up until a point, there were very famous classical performers who would come to local areas and do concerts, and they were free or they were affordable. And then this whole movement developed of crass commercialism, which totally commercialized the scene to the point where localities could not afford that anymore and could only use less known or amateurs. And it also had another effect, which is that big opera houses, for instance, 
had to pay through the nose for the lead singers and for the conductors. And not so much for the orchestra. <laughs> That's why, like, the med orchestra is gone on strike. I don't know how many times the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. But for the conductors and for the lead singers, they pay a fortune. And that, of course, means that ticket prices have to go through the roof, which they have. And not only that, but they can't afford to take a risk. So you don't see many new operas played at the Met. Well, that's why, for one thing, Philip Glass rented the Met to do uh, his Einstein on the Beach. They wouldn't have done it in those days. Now they do a few new operas, including Philip Glass. But generally, this keeps them from doing the new, because in the old times, the operas, they all wanted new works. They weren't going around being like museums of the operatic art. Every production was new, had new works, new works in them. Now what they do is they do the old works, but they try to generate excitement by a new production. For example, I saw a horrible production at the Met when I lived in New York some years ago of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro and Nozze de Figaro. I, I consider that one of the greatest operas ever written, if not the greatest opera ever written. But this production was taking place in a cathedral. The ceilings were, of the set were so vaulted that it made the singers look like ants. I won't go into the musical side of the production. You know, it had some great singers. What happens is those singers come there. They know these operas. They've done them in other opera houses. So they come in two days before, a week before, just to, to learn where to move around. They're not real productions, in my opinion. They're just going by the numbers. And you can see that. There's no real passion in them. And these people have sung it so many times. It becomes stale. And then again, you've heard it so many times on top of that. So that doesn't help either. So where's classical music today? Again, that's why I'm going into all this. Why a total totalism pretty much drove out the audience. Because people didn't listen to, to uh, Adorno. They, they, most people don't say, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, See, I don't want to be a bourgeois. I don't want to have a bourgeois attitude towards music. If they play this horrible music, but this philosopher and social critic says it's great music because it shows me how horrible our times are, and I agree our times are pretty horrible, then I must like it, no matter what. Except for some critics, most people aren't that stupid. And so what they do is they simply boycott new classical music. Or if you use any dissonance in your music as a composer, they, they accuse you of being atonal and, and say, well, listen to your music. So they become atonal shy, <laughs> you might say dissidents shy. And of course, that opened up a whole, a whole opening for stuff like new age music, which is like treacle. And, but at least it's not every note, not dissonant. Doesn't sound like fingers scratching on a chalkboard, which is what most, much of atonal music does, does actually sound like, sad to say. Some don't, but most do. It wears on you and it makes you want to just leave or turn it off. Unless you've convinced yourself that it has more importance than just the music you're hearing. Like, for instance, the opera Vatsek is done at the Met periodically. And it's a great story. It's a, by a, from a play by Georg Buchner about a soldier who is taken advantage of by everybody and who winds up strangling his wife and basically is living in poverty. And the story is great. Actually, the play is terrific. And Berg had the sense to make an opera out of it. The opera is musically hor horrifying, horrible, not just horrifying, but horrible. But 
the subject matter is so intense that it can bring you along. Well, I didn't walk out of it, although I couldn't stand the music, to tell you the truth. So that's where we are now. And that's why we have a great renaissance in popular music. Whereas popular music has taken over the musical field and it's constantly innovating whatever you may think of that particular work or even a particular genre. If you don't like hip hop or, or something or rap, you might like hip hop in general. You probably like the other kinds of music, of, of popular music, many of the other styles. But classical music, there is no mass audience and there's no industry. The industry that does exist caters to producing more and more records of yet another interpretation of the Beethoven piano sonatas or the Ninth Symphony or whatever. And there's an audience for that. Thank God. And those are certainly worthwhile pieces. I certainly listen to them many times. I just don't listen to them once and say, oh, now I know Beethoven. But modern classical music has not achieved anything like that status. Nowhere. Even though some small companies and small performance organizations do play it, there was a world poll that showed that 35% of the adults of the world who were polled prefer classical music. And a third of them were under 35 which is very good. However, almost surveys show that concert audiences, people who actually go to concerts are mostly old people. Seems to be a dying, a dying business. People are getting their music from streaming services now, sometimes CDs. In the United States, an NPR poll found that 11 million people listen to classical stations at least once a week. That's pretty significant. And it just shows you that classical music is still there. A, an earlier poll by the Lear Center indicated that 65% of people in the U.S. like classical music. However, <laughs> for some reason, that poll was pulled from the site and you can't get it anymore. But I know I saw it and I also saw some references to it on the internet, critics referencing that poll. And just a personal anecdote, when I was at Burger King getting my uh, Impossible Whopper, as I am a vegan of sorts, the cashier at the Burger King drive-in, when I drive, I play classical music, I stream from iTunes, and I had not turned it off the last time I was there, so I was playing it while she was giving me my Whopper. And she, the last time I went, I... I Decided not to play it. I thought that I realized I was being rude. So I turned it off and she said, how come you're not playing your classical music? And I said, I, I thought it was just be too loud and it would annoy you. She said, no, I want, uh, please play it. Classical music is good for the soul. Well, I can't tell you how much that affected me. Yet today there are no Oscars or Emmys for classical music. In other words, no big public awards to get it into public consciousness. There is a Grammy category but it's buried. You, you can look through the Grammy Awards on, on the web and you can see that there actually are classical awards, both for the music and for the recordings, best recordings. But it's not part of the Grammy show. When's the last time you saw that on the Grammys? Never. There's also a Pulitzer Prize for Music, which originally was a classical music award, but in the last number of years, they've decided to turn that into a general music award that's open to anyone, including popular music. And it's been won by rappers and jazz musicians and several other people who are not in the classical genre. It's one of the few classical awards that uh, people think are prestigious because it has the name Pulitzer and the Pulitzer Prize for, for uh, news media is very prestigious. So it rubs off on anybody who wins it for music. However, that's become iffy now. 
So can anything be done about this state of affairs? I've described it, and I'll continue to describe it in further lectures, trying to understand it. Because before you could do anything about anything, you need to understand it, is my, my opinion. And I'll take up in future podcasts, however, in addition to more analysis of this phenomenon, I'm going to take up what can be done, what we actually can do in the here and now, today, to move classical music forward. So... Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And I'll just end as I usually do with some of my music. Take care and stay safe.